Part one of chapter three of Animal Ghosts. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. Animal Ghosts by Elliot O'Donnell. Part one, chapter three. Horses and the Unknown. As in my chapters on cats and dogs, I will preface this chapter on horses with instances of alleged haunted localities. I take my first case from Mr. W. T. Steed's Real Ghost Stories, published in 1891. It is called A Weird Story from the Indian Hills, and Mr. Steed preludes it thus. The tale is told by General Barter C. B. of Carystown, Whitegate Company Court. At the time he witnessed the spectral cavalcade, he was living on the hills in India, and when one evening he was returning home, he caught sight of a rider and attendants coming towards him. The rest of the story, given in the general's own words, is as follows. At this time, the two dogs came, and, crouching at my side, gave low, frightened whimpers. The moon was at the full a tropical moon so bright that you could see to read a newspaper by its light and i saw the party before me advance as plainly as if it were noonday they were above me some eight or ten feet on the bridle road the earth thrown down from which sloped to within a pace or two of my feet on the party came until almost in front of me and now i had better describe them the rider was in full dinner dress with white waistcoat and wearing a tall chimney-pot hat and he sat a powerful hill pony dark brown with mane and tail in a listless sort of way the reins hanging loosely from both hands a sace led the pony on each side but their faces i could not see the one next to me having his back to me and the one farthest off being hidden by the pony's head each held the bridle close by the bit the man next to me with his right and the other with his left hand, and the hands were on the thighs of the rider, as if to steady him in his seat. As they approached, I, knowing they could not get to any place other than my own, called out in Hindustani, Quan he? Who is it? There was no answer, and on they came until right in front of me, when I said in English, Hello, what the devil do you want here? Instantly, the group came to a halt, the rider gathering the bridle reins up in both hands turned his face which had hitherto been looking away from me towards me and looked down upon me the group was still as in a tableau with the bright moon shining upon it and i at once recognized the rider as lieutenant b whom i had formerly known the face however was different from what it used to be in the place of being clean-shaven as when i used to know it it was now surrounded by a fringe what used to be known as a newgate fringe and it was the face of a dead man the ghastly waxen pallor of it brought out more distinctly in the moonlight by the dark fringe of hair by which it was encircled the body too was much stouter than when i had known it in life i marked this in a moment and then resolved to lay hold of the thing, whatever it might be. I dashed up the bank, and the earth, which had been thrown on the side, giving under my feet, I fell forward up the bank on my hands, recovering myself instantly. 
I gained the road and stood in the exact spot where the group had been, but which was now vacant. There was not the trace of anything. It was impossible for them to go on. The road stopped at a precipice about twenty yards further on, and it was impossible to turn and go back in a second. All this flashed through my mind, and I then ran along the road for about one hundred yards, along which they had come, until I had to stop for want of breath. But there was no trace of anything, and not a sound to be heard. I then returned home, where I found my dogs, who, on all other occasions my most faithful companions, had not come with me along the road. Next morning, I went up to D., who belonged to the same regiment as B., and gradually induced him to talk of him. I said how very stout he had become lately, and what possessed him to allow his beard to grow with that horrid fringe. D. replied, yes, he became very bloated before his death. You know, he led a very fast life, and while on the sick list, he allowed the fringe to grow, in spite of all that we could say to him, and I believe he was buried with it. I asked him where he got the pony I had seen, describing it minutely. Why, said D., how do you know anything about all this? You hadn't seen B. for two or three years, and the pony you never saw. He bought him at Peshawar, and killed him one day, riding in his reckless fashion down the hill to Triti. I then told him what I had seen the night before. Once, when the galloping sound was very distinct, I rushed to the door of my house. There I found my Hindu bearer, standing with a tatty in his hand. I asked him what he was there for. He said that there came a sound of riding down the hill and passed him like a typhoon and went round the corner of the house and he was determined to waylay it whatever it was in commenting on the case mr steed remarks that such a story as this gravely told by a british general in the present day helps us to understand how our ancestors came to believe in the wonderful story of herney the hunter I do not know about Herney the Hunter, but it is at all events good testimony that horses, as well as men, have spirits, for one of the ghosts the general saw was, undoubtedly, that of the pony murdered by B. Why it was still ridden by the phantom of its former master is another question. The next case I narrate is also taken from Mr. Steed's same work. It was sent him by one of the leading townsmen of cows in the Isle of Wight, and thus runs on a fine evening in april eighteen fifty nine the rider was riding with a friend on a country road twilight was closing down on us when after a silence of some minutes my friend suddenly exclaimed no man knows me better than you do jay do you think i am a nervous easily frightened sort of man far from it said i among all the men i know in the wild country i have lived and worked in I know none more fearless or of more unhesitating nerve. Well, said he, I think I am that too, and though I have traveled these roads all sorts of hours, summer and winter, for twenty years, I never met anything to startle me, or that I could not account for, until last Monday evening. About this time it was, riding old Fan, a chestnut mare, here on this cross, a four-way cross, road, and on my near side was a man on a gray horse coming from this left-hand road. I had to pull my off-rein to give myself room to pass ahead of him, 
he was coming at a right angle to me as i passed the head of the horse i called out good night hearing no reply i turned in my saddle to the off side to see whether he appeared to be asleep as he rode but to my surprise i saw neither man nor horse so sure was i that i had seen such that i wheeled old fan round and rode back to the middle of the cross and on neither of the four roads could i see a man or horse though there was light enough to see two hundred or three hundred yards as we can now well i then rode over to that gate a gate at one corner opening into a grass field thinking he might have gone that way looking down by each hedge i could see nothing of my man and horse and then and not until then i felt myself thrill and start with a shuddering sense that i had seen something uncanny and jove i put the mare down this hill we are on now at her very best pace but the strangest part of my story is to come said he continuing after i had done my business at the farmhouse here at the foot of this hill i told the old farmer and his wife what i had seen as i have now told you the old man said for many years i have known thee m on this road and you have never seen the like before on that cross seen what before i said why a man in light-colored clothes on a gray horse said he no never said i but i swear i have this evening the farmer asked had i never heard of what happened to the miller of l mills about forty years ago no never a word i told him well he said about forty years ago this miller returning from market was waylaid and murdered on that crossroad pockets rifled of money and watch the horse ran home about a mile away two serving men set out with lanterns and found their master dead he was dressed as millers often do in this part of the country in light-colored clothes and the horse was a gray horse the murderers were never found these are facts continued the farmer i took this farm soon after it all happened and though i have known all this and have passed over that cross several thousands of times i never knew anything unusual there myself but there have been a number of people who tell the same story you have told mother and me m and describe the appearance as you have done to us tonight mr steed goes on to add four evenings after all this occurred my friend related it to me as we were riding along the same road he continued to pass there many times every year for ten years but never a day saw anything of that sort my next case a reproduction of a letter in the occult review of september nineteen o six reads thus a phantom horse and rider mrs gaskin anderson's story the following story is i think very remarkable and i give it exactly as it was told to me and written down at the time a number of members of a gentleman's club were talking and discussing amongst other subjects the possibility of there being a future state for animals one of the members said i firmly believe there is in my early youth i had a practice as a medical man in one of the midland counties one of my patients was a very wealthy man who owned large tracts of land and had a stud composed entirely of bay horses with black points this was a hobby of his 
and he would never have any others. One day, a messenger came summoning me to Mr. L., as he had just met with a very bad accident and was on the point of death. I mounted my horse and started off without delay. As I was riding through the front gates to the house, I heard a shot, and to my amazement, the very man I was going to visit rode past at a furious pace, riding a wretched-looking chestnut with one white forefoot and a white star on its forehead. Arrived at the house, the butler said, "'He has gone, sir. They had to shoot the horse. You would hear the shot, and at the same moment my master died.' He had had this horse sent on approval. Whilst riding it, it backed over a precipice, injuring Mr. L., fatally, and on being taken to the stables, it was found necessary to shoot it. Alpha. The next case, I append, I published it in a weekly journal some years ago, was related to me by a Captain Beauclerk. The White Horse of Eastover. When I came down to breakfast one morning, I found amongst several letters awaiting me one from Colonel Onslow, the commanding officer of my regiment, when I first joined. He had always been rather partial to me, and the friendship between us continued after his retirement. I heard from him regularly, at more or less prolonged intervals, and either at Christmas or Easter invariably received an invitation to spend a few days with him. On this occasion, he was most anxious that I should accept. "'Do come to us for Easter,' he wrote. "'I am sure this place will interest you. It is haunted.' The cunning fellow! He knew I was very keen on psychical research work and would go almost anywhere on the bare chance of seeing a ghost. At that time, I was quite open-minded. I had arrived at no definite conclusion as to the existence or non-existence of ghosts. But to tell the truth, I doubted very much if the colonel's word, in these circumstances, could be relied upon. I had grave suspicions that this haunting was but an invention for the purpose of getting me to Eastover. However, as it was just possible that I might be mistaken, that there really was a ghost, and as I had not seen Colonel Onslow for a long time, and indulged in feelings of the warmest regard for both him and his wife, I resolved to go. Accordingly, I set out early in the afternoon of the Good Friday. The weather, which had been muggy in London, grew colder and colder the further we advanced along the line, and by the time we reached Eastover, there was every prospect of a storm. As I expected, a closed carriage had been sent to meet me, for the colonel, carrying conservatism, with more conservatism than sense, perhaps, to a fine point, cherished the deep root aversion to innovations of any sort, and consequently abhorred motors. His house, Eastover Hall, is three miles from the station, and lies at the foot of a steep spine of the Chilterns. The grounds of Eastover Hall were extensive, but in the ordinary sense, far from beautiful. To me, however, they were more than beautiful. There was a grandeur in them, a grandeur that appealed to me far more than mere beauty the grandeur of desolation, the grandeur of the unknown. As we passed through the massive iron gates of the lodge, I looked upon countless acres of withered, undulating grass, upon a few rank sedges, upon a score or so of decayed trees, upon a house, huge, bare, gray, and massive, upon bleak walls, upon vacant, eye-like windows, 
upon crude scenic inhospitality the very magnitude of which overpowered me i have said it was cold but there hung over the estate of eastover an iciness that brought with it a quickening a sickening of the heart and a dreariness that whilst being depressing in the extreme was withal sublime sublime and mysterious mysterious and insoluble a thousand fancies swarmed through my mind yet i could grapple with none and i was loth to acknowledge that although there are combinations of very simple material objects which might have had the power of affecting me thus yet any attempt to analyze that power was beyond far beyond my mental capability the house though old and its black oak panelings silent staircases dark corridors and general air of gloom were certainly suggestive of ghosts did not affect me in the same degree the fear it inspired was the ordinary fear inspired by the ordinary superphysical but the fear i felt in the grounds was a fear created by something out of the way something far more bizarre than a mere phantom of the dead the colonel asked me if i had experienced any unusual sensations the moment i entered the house and i told him yes nearly every one does he replied and yet so far as i know no one has ever seen anything the noises we hear all round the house have lately become more frequent i won't describe them i want to learn your unbiased opinion of them first we then had tea and whilst the rest there was a large house party indulged in music and cards the colonel and i had a delightful chat about old times i went to bed in the firm resolution of keeping awake till at least two but i was very tired and the excessive cold had made me extremely sleepy consequently despite my heroic efforts i gradually dozed off and knew no more till it was broad daylight and the butler entered my room with a cup of tea when i came down to breakfast i found every one in the best of spirits the onslows are great hands at original entertainments and the announcement that there would be a masked ball that evening was received with tremendous enthusiasm tonight we dance tomorrow we feed on easter eggs and fancy cakes one of the guests laughingly whispered what a nicely ordered program i hear too we are to have a real old-fashioned easter day heaving and lifting and stool ball hey gad the colonel deserves some knighthood soon after breakfast there was a general stampede to seaton and dinstable to buy gifts for in that respect again the onslows stuck to old customs and there was generally an interchange of presents on easter morning my purchases made i joined one or two of the house party at lunch in seaton cycled back alone to eastover in time for tea and at five o'clock commenced my first explorations of the grounds the sky having become clouded my progress was somewhat slow i did the park first and i had not gone very far before i detected the same presence i had so acutely felt the previous afternoon like the scent of a wild beast it had a certain defined track which i followed astutely eventually coming to a full stop in front of a wall of rock i then perceived by the aid of a few fitful rays of suppressed light which at intervals struggled successfully through a black bank of clouds the yawning mouth of a big cavern from the roof of which hung innumerable stalactites 
I now suddenly realized that I was in a very lonely, isolated spot, and became immeasurably perturbed. The unknown something in the atmosphere which had inspired me with so much fear was here conglomerated. It was no longer the mere essence. It was the whole thing. The whole thing? But what was that thing? A hideous fascination made me keep my gaze riveted on the gaping hole opposite me. At first I could make out nothing, nothing but jagged walls and roof and empty darkness. Then there suddenly appeared in the very innermost recesses of the cave a faint glow of crimson light, which grew and grew until, with startling abruptness, it resolved itself into two huge eyes, red and menacing. The sight was so unexpected, and by reason of its intent malignity so appalling, that I was simply dumbfounded. I could do nothing but stare at the thing, paralyzed and speechless. I made a desperate effort to get back my self-possession. I strove with all my might to reason with myself, to assure myself that this was the supreme moment of my life, the moment I had so long and earnestly desired but it was in vain. I was terrified, helplessly, hopelessly terrified. The eyes moved. They drew nearer and nearer to me, and as they did so, they became more and more hostile. I opened my mouth to shout for help. I could feel my lungs bursting under the tension. Not a sound came. And then, then, as the eyes closed on me, I could feel the cold, clammy weight pressing me down. There rang out, loud and clear in the keen and cutting air of the spring evening a whole choir of voices the village choral society i am not particularly fond of music certainly not of village music however well trained it may be but i can honestly affirm that at that moment no sounds could have been more welcome to me than those old folk songs piped by the rustics for the instant they commenced, the spell that so closely held me prisoner was broken. My faculties returned, and reeling back out of the clutches of the hateful thing, I joyfully turned and fled. I related my adventure to the colonel, and he told me that the cave was generally deemed to be the most haunted spot in the grounds, and that no one cared to venture there alone after dark. I have myself many times visited the cave at night, in the company of others, he said, and we have invariably experienced sensations of the utmost horror and repulsion, though we have seen nothing. It must be a devil. I thought so, too, and exclaimed with some vehemence that the proper course for him to pursue was to have the cave filled in or blasted. That night I awoke at about one o'clock, with the feeling very strong on me that something was prowling about under my window. For some time I fought against the impulse to get out of bed and look, but at last I yielded. It was bright moonlight, every obstacle in the grounds stood out with wonderful clearness, and directly beneath the window, peering up at me, were the eyes, red, lurid, satanical. A dog barked, and they vanished. I did not sleep again that night, not until the daylight broke, when I had barely shut my eyes before I was aroused by decidedly material bangings on the doors and hyper-boisterous Easter greetings. After breakfast, a few of the party went to church, 
a few into the nursery to romp with the children, whilst the rest dispersed in different directions. At luncheon all met again, and there was much merry-making over the tansy cakes, very foolish, no doubt, but to me at least very delightful, and perhaps a wise practice, at times, even for the most prosaic. In the afternoon the colonel took me for a drive to a charmingly picturesque village in the Chilterns, whence we did not set out on our way back till it was twilight. The colonel was a good whip, and the horse, though young and rather high-spirited, was, he said, very dependable on the whole, and had never caused him any trouble. We spun along at a brisk trot. The last village separating us from the hall was passed, and we were on a high eminence, almost within sight of home, when a startling change in the atmosphere suddenly became apparent. It turned icy cold. I made some sort of comment to the colonel, and as I did so, the horse shied. Halloa! I exclaimed. Does she often do this? No, not often. Only when we are on this road about this time, was the grim rejoinder. Keep your eyes open and sit tight. We were now amid scenery of the same desolate type that had so impressed me the day of my arrival. Gaunt, barren hills, wild, uncultivated levels, somber valleys, inhabited only by grotesque, enigmatical shadows that came from heaven knows where and hemmed us in on all sides. A large quarry, half full of water and partly overgrown with brambles, riveted my attention, and as I gazed fixedly at it, I saw, or fancied I saw, the shape of something large and white, vividly white, rise from the bottom. The glimpse I caught of it was, however, only momentary, for we were moving along at a great pace, and I had hardly seen the last of it before the quarry was left behind, and we were descending a long, gradual declivity. There was but little wind, but the cold was benumbing. Neither of us spoke, and the silence was unbroken, save by the monotonous patter-patter of the horse's hoofs on the dark road. We were, I should say, about halfway down the hill, when away in our rear, from the direction of the quarry, came a loud, protracted neigh. I at once looked round, and saw, standing on the crest of the eminence we had just quitted, and most vividly outlined against the enveloping darkness, a gigantic horse, white and luminous. At that moment, our own mare took fright. We were abruptly swung forward, and, had I not, mindful of the colonel's warning, been sitting tight, I should undoubtedly have been thrown out. We dashed downhill at a terrific rate, our mare mad with terror, and on peering over my shoulder, I saw to my horror the white steed tearing along not fifty yards behind us. I was now able to get a vivid impression of the monstrous beast. Although the night was dark, a strong, lurid glow, which seemed to emanate from all over it, enabled me to see distinctly its broad, muscular breast, its panting, steaming flanks, its long, graceful legs with their hairy fetlocks and shoeless, shining hoofs, its powerful but arched back, its lofty, colossal head with waving forelock and broad, massive forehead, its snorting nostrils, 
its distended, foaming jaws, its huge, glistening teeth, and its lips, wreathed in a savage grin. On and on it raced, its strides prodigious, its mighty mane rising and falling, and blowing all around it in unrestrained confusion. A slip, a single slip, and we should be entirely at its mercy. Our own horse was now out of control. A series of violent plunges, which nearly succeeded in unseating me, had enabled her to get the check of the bit between her teeth so as to render it utterly useless and she had then started off at a speed I can only liken to flying. Fortunately, we were now on a more or less level ground, and the road, every inch of which our horse knew, was smooth and broad. I glanced at the colonel convulsively clutching the reins. He was clinging to his seat for dear life, his hat gone. I wanted to speak, but I knew it was useless. The shrieking of the air as it roared past us, deadened all sounds. Once or twice, I glanced over the side of the trap. The rapidity with which we were moving caused a hideous delusion. The ground appeared to be gliding from beneath us, and I experienced the sensation of resting on nothing. Despite our danger, however, from natural causes, a danger which, I knew, could not have been more acute, my fears were wholly of the superphysical. It was not the horror of being dashed to pieces I dreaded. It was the horror of the phantom horse, of its sinister, hostile appearance, of its unknown powers. What would it do if it overtook us? With each successive breath I drew, I felt sure the fateful event, the long-anticipated crisis, had come. At last my expectations were realized. The teeth of the gigantic steed closed down on me. Its nostrils hissed resistance out of me. I swerved, tottered, fell, and as I sank on the ground, my senses left me. On coming to, I found myself in a propped-up position on the floor of a tiny room with someone pouring brandy down my throat. Happily, beyond a severe shock, I had sustained no injury a sufficiently miraculous circumstance as the trap had come to grief in failing to clear the lodge gates the horse had skinned its knees and the colonel had fractured his shoulder of the phantom horse not a glimpse had been seen even the colonel strange to relate though he had managed to peep round had not seen it he had heard and felt a presence that was all and after listening to my experience he owned he was truly thankful he was only Claire audience. A gift like yours, he said, with more candor than kindness, is a curse, not a blessing. And now I have your corroboration. I might as well tell you that we have long suspected the ghost to be a horse, and have attributed its hauntings to the fact that, some time ago, when exploring in the cave, several prehistoric remains of horses were found, one of which we kept, whilst we presented the others to a neighboring museum. I dare say there are heaps more. Undoubtedly there are, I said, but take my advice and leave them alone. Re-enter the remains you have already unearthed, and thus put a stop to the hauntings. If you go on excavating and keep the bones you find, the disturbances will, in all probability, increase, and the hauntings will become not only many, but multiform. Needless to say, the colonel carried out my injunctions to the letter. 
far from continuing his work of excavation, he lost no time in restoring the bones he had kept to their original resting place, after which, as I predicted, the hauntings ceased. This case, to me, is very satisfactory, as it testifies to what was unquestionably an actual phantasm of the dead, of a dead horse, albeit that horse was prehistoric, and such horses are all the more likely to be earthbound on account of their wild, untamed natures. Here is another account of a phantom horse taken from Mr. Steed's Real Ghost Stories. It is written by an Africander who, in a letter to Mr. Steed, says, I am not a believer in ghosts, nor never was, but seeing you wanted a census of them, I can't help giving you a remarkable experience of mine. It was some three summers back, and I was out with a party of Boer hunters. We had crossed the northern boundary of the Transvale and were camped on the ridges of the Simbombo. I had been out from sunrise and was returning about dusk with the skin of a fine black ostrich thrown across the saddle in front of me, in the best spirits at my good luck. Making straight for camp, I had hardly entered a thick bush when I thought that I heard somebody behind me. Looking behind, I saw a man mounted on a white horse. You can imagine my surprise, for my horse was the only one in camp, and we were the only party in the country. Without considering, I quickened my pace into a canter, and, on doing so, my follower appeared to do the same. At this, I lost all confidence, and made a run for it, with my follower in hot pursuit, as it appeared to my imagination. And I did race for it. The skin went flying in about two minutes, and my rifle would have done the same had it not been strapped over my shoulders. This I kept up until I rode into camp right among the pals cooking the evening meal. The bowers about the camp were quick in their inquiries as to my distressed condition, and regaining confidence, I was putting them off as best I could, when the old boss, an old bower of some sixty-eight or seventy years, looking up from the fire, said, The white horse! The Englishman has seen the white horse! This I denied, but to no purpose and that night, round the campfire, I took the trouble to make the inquiries as to the antecedents of the white horse. And the old bower, after he had commanded silence, began. He said, The English are not brave, but foolish. We beat them at Majuba some twenty-five seasons back. There was an Englishman here, like you. He had brought a horse with him, against our advice, to be killed with the fly, the same as yours will be in a day or two and he, like you, would go where he was told not to go. And one day he went into a bush, that very bush you rode through tonight, and he shot seven elephants. And the next day he went in to fetch the ivory, and about night his horse came into camp riderless, and was dead from the fly before the sun went down. The Englishman is in that bush now. Anyway, he never came back, and now anybody who ventures into that bush is chased by the white horse. I wouldn't go into that bush for all the ivory in the land. The English are not brave, but foolish. We beat them at Majuba. Here he ran into a torrent of abuse of all Englishmen in general, and in particular, and I took the opportunity of rolling myself up in my blankets for the night, sleeping all the better for my adventure. Now, Mr. Steed, I don't believe in ghosts, but I was firmly convinced during that run of mine, and can vouch for the accuracy of it, 
not having heard a word of the Englishman or his white horse before my headlong return to camp that night. I shortly hoped to be near that bush again, but, like the old Boer, I can say I wouldn't go into that bush again for all the ivory in the land. P.S. A few days after, we dropped across a troop of elephants without entering the fatal bush and managed to bag seven, photographs of which I took, and shall be pleased to send for your inspection if desired. There can be very little doubt that the phantom, the African Dursal, was the actual spirit of a dead horse. End of part one of chapter three.